My family is afflicted with this condition and I wonder if this happens in your household as well. Sometimes I can't make it for the dinner hour and as the person responsible for the evening meal, I often prepare something in advance, I put it in the fridge, I tell everybody dinner is made and ready and available, uh, but inevitably I get a phone call saying, I can't find the food. Where is dinner? And I say, it's right there, I put it in there. And sometimes, uh, even when I'm at home, Mum, I can't find the jam or the tomato sauce. Where is it? It's right there, I say. I know it's there because I bought it. I put it in there. But I have to come and I have to show my beloved child or my husband where it actually is. And we call this fridge eyes in our family. <laughs> fridge eyes is when something's right there and you can't see it. And our passage today is really about a different form of fridge eyes, spiritual blindness. And I've had a wonderful week rummaging through the last part of this passage, which has been like a treasure chest, uh, giving such rich anthropology about the human condition, the problem with it, uh, spiritual blindness, how, is, how it is healed, and a specific danger actually for religious people to be avoided. Um, and also I've been thinking about what this might mean for us in terms of discipleship and also our mission. I want to begin though by thinking about some specifics about the Gospel of John because uh, it's going to help us understand this passage. So one of the key differences with John from the synoptic gospels, which is Mark, Matthew and Luke, and by the way, if you're not familiar with that term synoptic, it's synchronicity of optics. So you can put Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark and Luke together and they read very similarly. The stories uh, happen very similarly and there's a lot of similarities. John is really different. And one of the big differences is that John, John's focus um, of where Jesus comes from now, uh, Mark, in Mark, John just, Jesus just appears on the scene immediately. He's just suddenly there. In Luke, uh, Jesus' lineage is traced through Mary and it goes back to um, Adam. And in Matthew, Jesus' lineage goes from, through Joseph right through to Abraham. But in John's Gospel... John talks about Jesus' origin as coming from the Father, from the cosmos, from beyond creation. And he has come from having a face-to-face -face relationship with the Father. And then there's also the difference about what Jesus came to do. Now, um, in the Gospel of John, there's not a lot of talk actually about the remission of sins. It's there, it's like sprinkled throughout like diamond dust, it's beautifully present, but it's not actually front and centre in the Gospel of John. John's focus is really about Jesus who comes to reveal the Father and to bring fullness of life. Another difference is that... Um, in the, other, in the Synoptic Gospels, you see a lot of miracles, crowds getting healed, lots of people getting healed. 
But in John's Gospel, there are seven selected miracles, which he calls signs. And they're specifically chosen. Uh, They're just very uh, uh, intimate interactions, usually. But they're there to show in the physical what Christ is doing in the spiritual. And they often follow this pattern that um, Janice has alluded to. There's a sign or a miracle, and it's followed by a conversation that Jesus has to explain the meaning. So, again, just to recap the story, the healing's taken place. Jesus has made some spit, um, and Martin told the man to wash his eyes. And then there's an interrogation, and the man is thrown out by the Pharisees. And up until this point, the man has not seen Jesus. He's just heard his voice. And then Jesus comes after the man's been healed, and he finds him, and he says to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? So it's a bit of an interesting term, son of man. Um, And this term, son of man, Jesus uses a lot in John. And there's two sort of ways to understand son of man. It could just mean human being, the son of a person, a human being. And Jesus seems to use that instead of I or me to just, uh, he he likes to emphasise his identification with humanity. But then this term, son of man, also refers to a human-like figure from Daniel 7. One who came, was, was to come and was given eternal authority to judge sins when human history is wrapped up at the end of all time. And when Jesus says, tell me, uh, when the man says, tell me, so that I can believe. Now, we don't really know, did he really know what Son of Man meant? And when Jesus used the term Son of Man, he was alluding to the fact that he was the Messiah, but being a little bit more hidden about it because the ramifications, the implications politically to say he was the Messiah, the King of the Jews, uh, was significant. So it was a way of saying that he was God's chosen Messiah, but doing it in a little bit more of a hidden way. And we don't know what the man really understood when he heard... Do you believe in the Son of Man? But he says, tell me so that I may believe. It seems like he's quite disillusioned with the religious authority. They've just put him through the ringer. They've asked him round and round about questions. And he's had the audacity of joining the dots and saying, look, you know, I don't really know who he is, but he's opened my eyes and I was born blind. Clearly, this is not someone that could be sinful. He must have come from God. And they have... And because he's had the audacity to speak this truth, they've thrown him out. Now, I think it's a really beautiful moment because let's remember and keep in mind that the man has only ever heard Jesus, right? And when, Je- when he says, tell me, so, tell me so that I can believe, and Jesus says, not only will you hear, but you have even seen the one who has spoken to you. That voice that voice of the healer, my voice, the voice that healed you, the one speaking to you, is the Son of Man. And it's on the recognition of Jesus' voice, the one who healed him, that he believes. Now, if we want to understand what spiritual blindness is and what healing from spiritual blindness entails, We need to look at the man's response. 
He believes and he worships him. Worship is what happens when spiritual blindness is healed. Because worship is the faculty that has been impaired. I'll say that again. Worship is what happens when spiritual blindness is healed because worship is the faculty or the sense or the capacity that has been impaired, that has been broken. As human beings above all else, we are worshipping creatures. And we've got an inner wanter. It's like one of those, um, I don't know if you've seen them, the watches that snap on your wrist and just wrap around. I don't know if you've seen those things. And they, they'll basically snap onto anything, you know, on contact. And it's like our inner wanter is broken. To know what we worship, we need to look at the hierarchy of our desires. Because we're, the thing we worship is the thing that organises our life. You just imagine uh, a living room and the way the furniture in it is arranged around what that priority for that room is. It might be the fireplace. It might be the TV. But worship gives the hierarchy to our desires and our allegiance. It's the thing that we are most willing to give our time to, our resources and our thought life. And it's the thing that we believe gives us fullness of life. Now, we all need healing from our idolatry because we're all prone to giving our highest allegiance to anything and everything except for God. And that's why the man's spiritual blindness is marked by worship. His, his healing is marked by worship. And it's interesting to think about this son of man language that Jesus has used because in Daniel 7, Daniel is in exile along with the Israelites in Babylon because they have had a colossal failure of worship. It was the one thing that they were supposed to do as God's people, to worship God above all things. But they've, their heart has been hopelessly sliding away constantly. No amount of intentionality over the centuries has solved this problem. They keep turning to idols, they keep abandoning their God, and all of the sins are just a manifestation of that core problem, the failure to worship. And it's like through the prophets, God's been speaking at a distance to the fridge. I'm the real thing. Choose me. I'm right there. I give life. And now Jesus comes and shows us. He is the one who brings fullness. Now, our idols are not so obvious today. Um, but idols don't have to be necessarily bad things. Idols can often be things that are good, that have become ultimate. Good things, when they become ultimate, become idols. Think back to the story in the garden with Adam and Eve, and they saw the fruit, and they saw that it was good to eat. The problem was that it competed with the sweetness of their allegiance to their God for whom they were made. In their imagination, that became better. And so that is our problem. We are born with heart, hearts that inevitably slide from our God. And like Israel, we just can't do it. We need to be healed from our fridge eyes. Jesus came to reverse our condition 
And he shows this physically and then spiritually in the man. It's a beautiful scene, but he follows it up with commentary. And the second conversation is one that is sparked by the Pharisees responding to these words. He says, I have come to bring judgment so the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Now, the Pharisees are not dummies. They get it. They understand that Jesus is is really talking to them indirectly. And they protest. We're not blind. We follow the law. So let's have a think a little bit about what their idolatry entailed. Because there were desires. There were many desires that they put ahead of God. And here's three of them, at least three. There's more, I'm sure, if we think about it. But they had the desire to be seen as exceptional. So they arranged their life to make sure that they were in the markets with flowing robes so that they could be greeted as rabbi. The desire to be seen as exceptional. They had a great desire to be seen as spiritually superior. And actually there was such an abuse of spiritual power because they would tie burdens, Jesus says, onto backs of people but refuse to lift a finger to help them. So this need to be superior spiritually was a great desire that really was the hallmark of the way they operated as Israel's leaders. And then there was just simple, plain old greed. Jesus said that they devour widows' houses. And so they had a practice of, of targeting vulnerable people who they were supposed to be caring for, uh, who had been bereaved, these women, and instead of taking care of them, they would go to these houses and ingratiate themselves and manipulate these women into parting with their money that was limited, finite, that they needed to survive on, and they became destitute. Such incredible spiritual abuse. And so they're so blind. But... Here's the thing. They're managing their sin through the law. They think that by keeping the law, they're going to avoid judgment. But they're blind to the heart of the law and the way they violate that heart, which is to love God and love neighbour. So Jesus has come and he's standing at the fridge and he's showing he is the one who is fullness. And he says... I only do what my father does. I've been healing and raising the dead. I've been feeding the hungry. I am the real thing. I'm the one who gives fullness. And later on he says, he who's seen me has seen the father to his disciples. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the father. But the Pharisees refuse the help of Jesus to see the father. And they cling to what they believe actually brings them fullness, their power their greed and their love of human praise. So they remain, remain blind, and as such, Jesus cannot help them. Now, as I was thinking about the Pharisees, I was thinking about the specific danger that can happen for people who are very close and actually have been given the truth of God. And that is to carry in our hearts a form of the gospel which actually shrinks it down 
to just a message of sin management. Because sin management can be a way to keep God away from your idols. If we believe that all we have to do is make some mental affirmation that Jesus is Lord, that he died on my cross to save me from my sins, but actually I don't really let him heal me of the, of the blindness that I have to make other things full, you know, give me that fullness, then I'm using a gospel of sin management to keep God away from my idols. And this is a reductionist, soterian form of the gospel. Soterian just means to be saved. And it can be very easy to fall into that trap. I've been reading a couple of books that talk about this, and I want to recommend them to you if you're interested in this. They're really powerful ones called The King Jesus Gospel by a theologian called Scott McKnight, and then one called The Gospel Precisely by Matthew Bates, and they really talk about this thing. And Matthew Bates particularly talks about the, um, actually we're saved through allegiance. It's not about just having a mental assent to a faith proposition. Let me now just uh, share with you what, uh, what uh, benefit this understanding might bring for our discipleship and also for our mission. Discipleship and, uh, well, our healing from our spiritual blindness actually comes in stages because we do see but we still see through a glass dimly. One day we'll see face to face. And the reality is it takes time for our idols to be fully dismantled in this life. Um, they can't really harm you if, Jesus, if you've professed Jesus, but they can um, be used by the devil to try to hang on to a little piece of your heart. And my, my counsel is to become aware, but don't take on that idol directly. And the reason is because although that thing is actually not powerful in itself, there's a voice behind that. It's the voice that was in the garden that promises that that thing, that relationship or that job or that lifestyle is going to bring fullness. It's a powerful voice. Don't take it on. Worship is the issue. Worship is the solution. And just as in the same way, it's, it's too hard, you know, if you've got a child that's clinging on to something that they really want, you... you a, better, a braver person than me to try to tackle them for that thing, right? Um, far better to show them a better thing so that they will abandon their idol. So fill our eyes. Let's fill our eyes with the better thing of the Lord. Worship is the way to help dismantle the idols that we might still have rattling around speaking to us in our life. And worship also sustains us when our legitimate desires remain unmet. Desires are actually a good thing, a godly thing, and uh, not all of them are going to be met in this life, but worship is the thing that sustains us because no other God can save us, only the Lord. In our church, we've been thinking a lot about mission and uh, there's been a lot of prayer and great desire to see our church grow. And I uh, just want to um, I think this passage can really encourage us. We can, it can be quite discouraging in our secular society uh, because not many people believe in transcendent reality, that there's anything beyond 
the flat universe that we can apprehend with our five senses. Or if they do believe in something, faith is fragile. Truth claims are highly contested. We can't know for sure. Um, And maybe if there's a God, he's probably not judging me anyway. So I don't really fear his judgment. But this passage tells us that everybody's blind and it's because everybody's hungry and everybody is looking for that fulfilment in the wrong place. So we can be confident that Jesus is the one who gives fullness. And one of the ways we see that actually in our society is there is a growing class of spiritual but not religious people. People are actually cottoning on to the fact that the flattened world, the promise of the secular culture, that you can find fullness by finding your authentic self, it's not delivering. And people are looking for something greater than the meaning that the secular world is providing. The other way I think... Uh, this uh, having our eyes open and being restored to a face-to-face relationship with the Father helps us in our mission, is that like Moses, whose face was transformed by his face-to-face relationship with the Father, our faces become transformed as well. There will be people who will be drawn to God's radiance specifically because of the way it is reflected in you. And I think we can sometimes downplay, you know, people and when they're drawn to us as just our personality. But I think God actually works through the ecology of personhood to bring his glory into the world. And so my encouragement is to tune in to people who seem especially drawn to you and just love to talk with you and be with you. Uh, because I'm confident that it is because God's radiance is shining through you. And worshipping God face to face is what continues to keep us radiant. Now, because worship is really important, we're going to look at worship much more in depth after Easter. And uh, it'll be wonderful to learn together how to worship and to exercise it as a muscle. Um, And uh, I'm sure that I'll learn from you as you'll learn from others and we'll do that together. Fridge eyes. Everyone's got it. Jesus came to heal our broken worship instinct. He is the bread of life. So let us keep him before our eyes and hold him out to the world that's longing but unable to see. Because in that fridge, behind all the fruit of the idols, Jesus is there as the bread of life. And when eyes are opened, worship happens. Knees sink before him and embrace the fullness that he offers. Amen.